Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. good to be with you all. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. It's good to see something besides the four walls of my house. I am excited to be here today. I uh, barely made it out of quarantine in time to come and share with you our final message in this series on our mission statement. My entire family uh, had COVID and uh, we are all uh, much, much better and um, I'm feeling part of that is because I'm on a doctor-prescribed steroid. So you've, you've heard of athletes on steroids, but have you heard of preachers on steroids? I, it remains to be seen whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'll let you be the judge of that. So we are starting out this year with our sermon series that we hope will help build a biblical foundation for our new mission statement and help us to live into that. Our new mission statement is that we are a Christ-centered community for you, for Tulsa, and for the world. So fundamentally, our mission is to participate with God in his building of a Christ-centered community of people, people who are Jesus first, who live Christ-centered lives. And then within that, we've nuanced a couple of different aspects. The first one means that that mission is that we are for you. It's relational work. It's personal. It's incarnational. We are bringing the presence of Christ and we are taking with us into the world the presence of Christ. And we are bringing people into this incredible new way of living with Jesus Christ at the center. And so whoever you are, we are for you becoming the person God created you to be. And we invite you to become part of this community of Jesus' people. Secondly, our mission has a uniqueness in that it is geographic. As individuals and as a community, we have right now, because we're living in this time and this place in history, we have a calling to this place and to these people. You may not always live in Tulsa. You haven't always lived in Tulsa. But right now you live, I'm assuming, somewhere within the vicinity of the Tulsa metro area. Maybe there's people living online. Maybe you live somewhere else. But you have a calling to the place that God has put you specifically, not there by accident. We are called to this place. And so COVID has kind of messed with some of how we participate in world missions. And so we've taken this season to sort of reinvigorate this local calling that we have through Fort Tulsa. My biggest bummer of my COVID quarantine uh, was missing the banquet on Friday night, but I know it was amazing. I'm excited to see of that. I'm glad that it was recorded. Grateful for all who made that happen. For Pastor Dan, who has really championed uh, the Fort Tulsa aspect of our mission this past year exceptionally well. Uh, for Megan and, and, and the missions team and all those volunteers who put together the banquet. Uh, I'm really grateful because we are excited to be a church that is for Tulsa. But of course, some of you might be thinking, okay, great. I've heard a lot about this Fort Tulsa thing, but what about our mission to the world? Well, it's both and, and we have not given up on our mission to the world. And we will go again far. But you know, the the cool thing about 
the time and place that we live in is that in a way being for Tulsa is also being for the world. Have you noticed how it's happening? We live in, in a very large country. It's very populated. People from all over the world are coming to the United States. So I'm not saying that, that we don't have a calling to go because we do, but we can also be for the world by being for our neighborhoods because people from all over the world live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so that's cool that we live in this time, in this part of God's mission, because that isn't always the case in every part of the world. And so there's a kind of overlap to that. So the final aspect of our mission is that it's comprehensive. This Christ-centered community and mission is for all nations, as we've just heard about by the beautiful message presented through the choirs we've just read, as Pastor Dan just read from Matthew 28. This mission is for all nations. And listen to this snapshot from the vision of heaven that John recorded in the book of Revelation. He said, After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Friends, this is the vision of where we're going. We are going to be gathered together, a Christ-centered community from people all over the place from all times in history. The people of God are going to be gathered and we're going to worship before the throne of God, and we're going to worship the Lamb for who He is. And we're going to revel in His glory. And we're going to enjoy the new creation, the new kingdom, whatever that looks like. It's going to be amazing. Friends, this is the vision. And so today we're looking at one of the places in Scripture where Jesus Himself very clearly articulated this mission to the New Testament church as it's starting out. But the vision is to where we're going, which is this incredible, beautiful vision of heaven, Revelation 7, 9. And so it's one of the reasons that we have a desire as a church to, over time, by the grace of God, be a better reflection of our neighborhoods and a better reflection of what heaven is going to look like, that we would be a church filled with all kinds of people of all different ethnicities, because this word nations, all nations, it's the word ethnos, all different ethnicities. And so that's our desire. And that's not a political agenda, so we can be politically correct. That's a biblical vision of what the church can and should look like. And there's all kinds of obstacles to that. But let's just pray by the grace of God that we would, in our small groups and in our Bible studies and, and in our communities and in our relationships, that God would draw people, all kinds of people, into his community, into our community as we worship Christ together. So, can I get an amen on that? Amen. All right. So let's take a look at a few different aspects of what this text reveals about our mission. An incredible text. You're probably familiar with it, but let's pray we can look at it through fresh eyes. So first we see that our mission is grounded in the work and authority of Jesus Christ. So let's start with the work first. The mission of the church begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the mission of God goes all the way back to the beginning of the story, but the particular aspect of it for the New Testament, the New Covenant church, happens when the risen Christ appears to the disciples. This is the moment that changes everything. And so our mission is based on the work of Jesus. Now, what do we mean by the work of Christ? Well, really, we mean specifically all that he came to do in his incarnation, his birth, his life his ministry, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. All of that 
is the work of Jesus that we're talking about. But the resurrection is the pinnacle of that work. It's the linchpin, in fact, that is the way that Paul describes it. It all stands on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the proof of the divinity of Jesus, that he is who he says he is. It's the proof of God's supernatural power. It's the proof that his work has defeated death, hell, and the grave. It's proof that God has accepted the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It all comes together in the resurrection. This is what launches the mission of the church. When the disciples see the risen Christ, this is the moment in history that changes everything and is continuing to change our world today. And so the passage begins with the disciples going to Galilee to a certain agreed upon location on a mountaintop. And when the disciples see Jesus, what's the first thing that they do? It says they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Well, what does that mean? I mean, most of our concept of worship is through a formal worship service like this. What this word means, really in this context, is to get on your knees and fall on your face out of reverence and respect for someone who is superior, such as a king or a higher-ranking official. That's what this word worship means, to fall flat on your face out of reverence and awe and respect and joy and admiration. You know, when the, president, when the president of the United States steps off Air Force One, you see all the military personnel lined up, and they're all standing there, and they're standing at attention, and they're saluting. Whether they voted for that person, whether they like that person, the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And so in that moment, they take that posture because they are saying, in effect, whatever was happening before you got off that plane, whoever we are and whatever orders we've been given, all of a sudden, you are the most important. You are the highest ranking person. And whatever you say, we are going to do. And in effect, it's a very different concept, but I think this is the idea of worship, is this idea that, that Jesus is the most important person. Whatever ideas we have for our life, when we see him, when he shows up in our lives, when he showed up to the disciples and they saw, them, saw him in that moment, they fell flat on their faces. They were undone because Jesus was standing in front of them. I mean, can you imagine this moment? Imagine someone that was dead, dead. I mean dead. You knew it. You saw it happen. They were dead. And now they're alive. I think we hear it so many times, we think, okay, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead. No, Jesus was raised from the dead, people. I know I'm preaching on steroids this morning, but this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Jesus was raised from the dead. And I wonder, just how many times in our lives do we, do we have similar moments? And it's, it's not about these mountaintop experiences. I realize most of our life of discipleship is lived in the valley. But I think we need those moments in our lives when all of a sudden it's just real. All of a sudden it's like Christ is there in front of us and we realize you are real. And we realize what Christ has done for us. And we just fall on our faces and we just want to worship him and glorify him for what he has done. I wonder if you ever have those moments. And sometimes I think they're few and far between because we're, we're too distracted. We just have so much going on and we just... We really don't take the time to stop and think about 
Jesus Christ and the work and all that he has done for us, the authority in our lives. I'll tell you really quickly a story from my own life. A few years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to take a little study leave, and um, during that time, I worshiped at a couple of different churches here in town. And it's very good and healthy for a pastor to go somewhere else and not feel like they're the, the person in charge or leading and all that. So there's a lot of good things about it. But I'll tell you, I showed up at this church, and, and um, it was pretty full. And it was the very first time I'd ever been there, and I sat sort of towards the back. And it was just beautiful to see different, different people of God and just to be there and enjoying. And uh, the first song started, and it was just really simple uh, and they started playing Amazing Grace. And I'm telling you, I just began to weep. I mean, I was just undone by the beauty and the simplicity of, of the amazing grace of God. And, and I'm not a person that, that does that all the time, and that's okay too. But I just began, and, and of course at first I'm like embarrassed. I'm thinking, this is the first time I've ever been in this church. And it was to the point where, I mean, the people beside me, they knew it. I mean, I'm like trying to hold it in, and they're probably just thinking, who is this guy? But I was just in that moment amazed by Christ. And, what, and, that, and that's why I think about moments like that in my life, and I could tell you many. And, and, and again, we don't live from moment to moment, but we do need at times, I think, when we really just stop and we ponder the grace of God and we worship him. We're just laid out before him in all of what he's done. So then in verse 17, it continues on. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love that Matthew includes this in the gospel. I mean, you didn't have to include that detail, right? Glorious moment, Jesus appears, all the disciples worship him, and then they go on and get about their mission. But nope, we get this little phrase, but some doubted. Now, what does this word doubt mean? It doesn't mean total unbelief. It means to waver. It means to be hesitant, wondering, questioning. And this is good news for us because the crew that Jesus met with for years and walked with and taught and fed and did all the crazy things they did, and now the same ones that he is appearing to in flesh and blood. And the text tells us, and you know what? Even in that moment, some of them doubted a little bit. And truth is, I think if you put a lot of us in that situation, we'd be going, wait, is this real? Is this really happening? All throughout the disciples, there's these moments of doubt. And I love this because we, we get discouraged. We get distracted. We doubt. We waver. We question things. We have a hard time with God's will and what's going on in the world. We, have, we struggle in our lives. And these disciples, they doubted. And you know what? It didn't disqualify them. And it doesn't disqualify us. That we waver, that we're hesitant, that we doubt. It's human. But don't turn away. Don't get discouraged. Come back. Draw close to Christian community where others, brothers and sisters, can hold you up when you're doubting, when you're waving, when you're beginning to walk towards sin, when you're struggling in your life. Have people who will pull you back in to the grace of God. They doubted and it didn't disqualify them. The disciples were not super Christians. They were people just like us that God used by his grace. So our mission is grounded in the work of Jesus, but it's also grounded in the authority of Jesus. Look at verse 
18. It's interesting, as Jesus gathers the disciples, he doesn't begin first with an instruction or a command. He begins with a claim. And his claim is, folks, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's stop and think about that for a second. That's an amazing statement. I think sometimes we read that and we're going through the Great Commission and we go, okay, all authority has been given to heaven and earth by Jesus. Okay, we get that. Therefore, go. Okay, there's the part. We got to do our part. Let's go. Yes, we do go. And there is work to do, but we need to stop and think about this statement. Before we go, we need to realize that our going is based on an authority that has been given to us. It's not our authority. It's the authority of Jesus by which we go out. It's his authority. Based on his work that he did, he earned the authority given to him by the Father, and he takes that authority, and he says, because all authority has been given to me, therefore I send you out as my people, as we've talked about, to be my ambassadors in the world. Colossians 1 says, all things were created by him and through him and for him, that is, Jesus Christ When the world feels out of control, when your own life feels out of control, this is comforting news to know that you are in covenant relationship with the one who says, I have all authority. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Will you rest in that? Will you rejoice in that church? We serve the one who says, I own it all. It's all mine. I created it all. It was all created by me. It was created through me. It was created for me. Therefore, I send you out to do the work of Jesus through building the community that lives in the way of Jesus. And so our mission is to build a Christ-centered community for the world. That's the conclusion of it. Ultimately, it's a personal thing. It's about reaching people. We are for you. We're for Tulsa. We're for the specific place that God has called us. But we are a church that is for the world because God's mission is for the world. Because heaven will be filled with people from all over the world. That is our mission, to go and make disciples of all nations. So in this short statement, we answer a couple of questions. The first one is, what is our mission? Well, our mission is to go. To go. Fundamentally, the church, the community of God's people, we're people on mission. Everywhere, all the time, we are a sent people who are on the go. We have this statement around here, go, it's what we do. This is what we do. We're people who go. In Genesis 12, God chose one family. He promised to bless all families of the earth through what he'll do through them. And when God calls this first family, he tells the, the uh, patriarch, Abram, to go. He says, leave everything that you know behind, leave the safety and comfort of life as you know it, and go to the place that I am going to show you. And then I will bless you and will be a blessing through you. And that's how life is. We're called to go in the name of Jesus, and sometimes we're really not sure where we're going. And God says, go, and I will show you along the way. I will take you to a place that you could not even Imagine, and through you, you'll be a blessing. So the mission of the church is to go and make disciples. A disciple is a learner, a follower, or an apprentice. 
We're apprentices of Jesus. And so making disciples is relational ministry. It's, about, it's all about relationship. Relationship with Christ, relationship with one another. Everything else that we do, the programs and the structures, the infrastructure that we build, it should all serve the purpose of relationships, of Christ-centered relationships. Now, if we were called to go and make converts, we could do that without a lot of relationship. I just need you to go and convey some information to some people who will consent to that information intellectually and check a box that they heard what you said and they understand and they think they believe that. That's conversion. Conversion is part of the process. I'm not downplaying. There is a, a decision to surrender your life and to follow Jesus and to place faith in him. But it's, it's more than that. It's discipleship. We're called to go and make disciples, not converts, which means we're called to go and be in relationship with people. And I think this is the part we really have to understand as a church when we're, if we're going to wrap our minds around what it means to reach people in the increasingly post-Christian era. The world's changed. Our neighborhoods have changed. Our community has changed. We're living in a different time. And I don't think that the Western church yet has figured out how truly how to reach people in this new time. I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't heard anybody who's figured it out yet. But I know part of it is, is changing our mindset. Because I think some of the programmatic approaches that God has used in the past, absolutely. But I'm not sure that that's totally going to get it done. But I know where it starts fundamentally is relationships, because that's, that's always where it starts, and that always has worked, is relationship-based approach to the mission. So that's why we got to get out in our city, and we got to get out interacting with folks, and it's a challenge for every single one of us. So who do we go to? Well, Jesus says, all nations. Well, elsewhere, Jesus affirms and clarifies this. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, what does that mean for us as, as individuals? We're not, all, we're not even all physically capable of going to the ends of the earth. We know historically many people before modern airfare and all that, they, they couldn't necessarily go to the ends of the earth. But I think what Jesus is saying, first of all, is that the church collectively is going to reach the ends of the earth, right? Our project together. But I also think it means that as individual believers, that we need to be open to taking the gospel across the street or around the world as God guides and provides us, provides for us. Being open to that. And sometimes going across the street to your neighbor is more challenging than getting on a plane and going around the world. It's true. I hear that from folks. I've experienced that. I think what Jesus is asking us to do is have an openness to be willing because the gospel has changed us and it changes everything. We are willing and we're open, genuinely open and seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God, where would you have me go? As I'm going, who do you want me to stop and talk to, to pray with? And through us, the collective body of Christ over time, God will build his church to the ends of the earth. But I think it also means that we have an opportunity as a church to fulfill each of these aspects. And we've for a long time built our missions budget around that. We allocate money to local outreach, to uh, regional, to national, and to international. We want to hit 
all of these aspects. We think, God, there's enough of us and enough gifting and enough opportunity and enough resources that we can hit all of those things. And so we've, we've built our budget around that, and we've built our mission strategy around that, and we're going to keep on doing that. We're going to be a church that's for our community and for the world. Now, a point of clarity that I've made before, and I, sometimes I'll hear Christians say something like, you know, when it comes to missions, some people pray. There's people that pray for missions. And then there's the people that give to missions. And then there's the people that go on missions. And I, I think that that's not a biblical approach. I just don't. Again, we may not all be called to go to Mongolia physically. We may not all ever get to go and see the wonderful work at Centerville in Meru, Kenya. We, we, we can't all go the same amount. We can't all give the same amount. Uh, we all really have the opportunity, but we're not all called to pray in the same way. But we all give, and we all pray, and we all go. Why? Because the Great Commission is to go and to make disciples. I just want to challenge your thinking on that. Again, I know some of you might not ever get on an airplane ever again. Some of you probably should, and you've never done it before. Those convictions are between you and the Lord. But don't say, I'm not a person who goes. I just, I just give to the work of missions. No, we are all people who go. Because your going might be Walmart. Your going might be uh, just to a ministry across town. Your going might be bringing someone with you to a Bible study that you know in, in your neighborhood or that you met out somewhere. We're all people who go. Yes? Good. So how do we make disciples? Well, that's a really big question. Jesus doesn't answer it all for us here, but he gives us two specific things. He says to baptize them and to teach them. As you go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, both of those at surface level kind of sound like things that leaders do, pastors do. Oh, okay, well, we, well the pastor baptizes people. And the pastor is the one that stands up and, and preaches or teaches. So what's my part, right? That sounds like official work. Uh, that, that other people do. Well, I think both of these commands represent a much broader theme because baptize, baptism highlights the theme of community. When it says baptizing them, it's not just talking about the formal liturgical action of baptizing someone within the context of a worship service. This idea of baptism is welcoming people into the community of faith. That's what baptism represents. It represents being baptized into something, dying to self, coming to life, and being welcomed into a community of faith. So baptizing them means welcoming people into the body of Christ and being in relationship with them. That's work that we all do. And then in verse 20, it says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, this is probably pretty obvious, but just for the sake of clarity, you can't be a disciple maker unless you are first a disciple of Jesus. Right? He says, Teach them what I have taught you. So, so you have to be an apprentice of Jesus. You have to know what he says. You have to hear his commands and be walking in them. Not perfectly, not at all. But you have to be a disciple in order to make disciples. So that's, that's the beginning part. You have to believe the good news about what Jesus has done for you. You have to surrender your life. You have to turn away from your sins. Quit trying to do life on your own and place your faith and your trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and then follow him with his help, with his grace, 
follow him, be a disciple, be a learner. And then notice that it says, teaching them to know everything I command you. No. It says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teaching them to obey. It's not enough to know. It's teaching them to obey. And so together we walk walk alongside people. We don't just teach them what Jesus has said, but we follow Jesus and we help them and encourage them to actually obey. We actually want to become more like Jesus. So we have to know him. We have to know what he says. We have to be people of the book. We have to study. We have to know. And then we have to be willing to share that with others, teaching them to obey as you are obeying as well. A big part of that is the discipleship ministry of the next generation, of teaching our children, of teaching our young people the way of faith and coming alongside of, alongside of them. We have to know what he expects. We have to walk with him. We have to walk with others. This, this is discipleship. Again, it's relationships. We've heard it all before, but yet we default to lots of other things. A really quick application for all of us. I think one step in this, a relational work that we can all do, is inviting people. It's not the only step, but it's, and it's an important step. Inviting people into windows of the community of faith. It might be inviting someone to your small group. It might be inviting someone to come and serve alongside you as you do good work in Tulsa. That can be a less intimidating opportunity. Many people are interested in serving. They don't know why. They don't understand why they have that compulsion to serve. They think it's just a goodwill thing. It makes them feel good. No, God hardwired that into us. And so people can come and serve alongside of us and come to understand why it is that we serve. We serve because we serve a God who has served us and who loves us. And of course, the invitation to invite people to come and worship. That used to be the first step. Again, we're living in a post-Christian time. I think the invitation to worship might not necessarily be the first step anymore. It might be simply inviting people into your life, into a smaller uh, commitment, a smaller format, getting to know them to the point that eventually maybe they would be curious enough to come and see what the community of faith looks like. But I think inviting is something that we can all do. It's an important step of discipleship, simply inviting people into our lives. I'll close with this. Our mission is empowered by the presence of Christ. What a beautiful reminder. What a beautiful promise. How beautifully we have heard it this morning already. Thank you, choir. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Engaging in the work of God and the mission of God, that can feel like a very daunting task, can't it? It just feels so big. It feels like the opportunity is so great. It feels like the world is just such a mess. It's like, where do we even go from here? You ever ask yourself that question? Where do we even go from here? Turn the TV off. Stop. Get off social media and read this passage. God is doing his work in the world. He is building his kingdom. And he says, I am with you to the very end of the age. And nothing can stop my mission of building my church. Nothing can stand in the way. God is building his community right now. Right now. And nothing can stand against it. And he has invited us to participate in that mission. And he has promised us, no matter what happens, 
no matter what happens. I am with you always to the very end of this age, which also implies that there's an age to come after that. This age, to the end of the age as you know it. And then that's when real life begins. And so at the end of the day, what's going to make us successful in our mission is not strategy, it's not a program, it's not charismatic leadership, it's not the right resources or the right education. What we need to be for the world and to carry the mission of God into the world is the presence of Christ in our lives. That's what we need. He'll give us all the other things that we need. We need his presence. We need an abiding presence. We need an overflowing presence. Pastor Colin hit on this a few weeks ago. We need the sense that we have been with Jesus, that there's something about us that is qualitatively different, and it's not us, it's otherworldly. We need the presence of Christ overflowing from our lives as we go. If we take the presence of Christ with us into the world as we go, we will see amazing things. We have a mission. It's to be Jesus' people. For personal, individual people, for our community, and for our world. What an amazing mission that God has swept us up into. He is doing it. He invites us into it. And nothing will stop it. Would you join me as we pray together? Father in heaven, I thank you that you are a God who is for us. And if you be for us, what can be against us? And God, I pray that that joy and that hope and that longing in our hearts of all that you have placed within us, God, that you would spill it over. It would overflow from our lives into the lives of others. God, we pray that you would help us to be obedient, to be willing, to be open, to surrender all, to bow before you and say, God, whatever it is that we had on our mind, whatever agenda we had before, you are here and you are our commander-in-chief. You are our Lord. You are our master. But you also are the one who loves us with an everlasting love. And so, God, we surrender all of who we are to your work and to your mission. And we pray, we know that it will be successful in the ways that you define it. So help us as we become discouraged. Help us as we turn away and we are unfaithful. God, to keep coming back to you and your faithfulness to carry out your mission in the world. God, would you bear incredible fruit through each and every person in this room, each and every person listening online, all who are a part of this church. And I pray that together you would pull us and you would leverage us as a people of God in this time and place to reach out with your love and your hope and your truth. God, help us to be a Christ-centered community for the world. It is all for your glory. We take no credit, but we are delighted to be a part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.